Life's pretty tough right now for a lot of people. And this can really impact our mental health. Even if you're stuck at home, it's so important to stay connected. In fact, it's more important now than ever. If you have a mental health issue, the SANE forums are a place where you can talk online to people who get it. They know what you're going through because they've been there too. The community on the forums discuss all sorts of experiences, so you're sure to find someone like you who can help you feel less alone. The forums are completely free and anonymous, and mental health professionals are there in the background 24-7, so you'll always feel safe and supported. Sign up right now and chat to others at sane.org forums. Because physical distancing doesn't have to mean social distancing. Sane.org slash forums. That's S-A-N-E dot org slash forums. We care because we've been there. Hey, Annabelle, how was your weekend? I'm so pleased you asked, Lee Sales. <laughs> uh, I had a very weird weekend because I had two. I, w- I was slated to do two things over the weekend that filled me with a deep and existential terror. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I do like to mix that up. <laughs> Just my normal sort of humming degree of existential terror about, you know, forgetting things and too many things to do uh, was augmented on this occasion by terror of dancing on a truck at Mardi Gras you know what a great dancer I am. <laughs> and there's something about like, I'll be dancing in front of, well, let's face it, a huge big gay crowd that's really good at dancing. It sounds like yeah. we got body swapped over the weekend or something because that sounds like what I should have been doing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you were going to bed at 9pm. We didn't even get <laughs> moving on the truck until 10.30pm. It was full oh. on. But the best thing, look, what I'll say straight up is I just had not really anticipated how exhilarating it would be to be sort of elevated on a vehicle looking out at a crowd that is only full of exhilarated happy faces. That is actually, how often do you see that? Because, I mean, if you've got a big sporting crowd or something, unless you're in the middle, you don't see... Yeah, chat 10 is the closest thing, but, like, I'm talking tens of thousands of people. So it just... I don't know. It was and very... was it a warm reception for the ABC? Oh, yeah, super. Oh, great. And um, I don't know, they kind of like mashed up a whole bunch of ABC themes into a danceable track. <laughs> <laughs> there was like quite a complicated choreography, which I did sort of learn a bit and then constantly muff up. And also, you know, I was just sort of surrounded by a bunch of really good dancers. On I would the have thought so... you would have been like sitting on a throne or something wearing a crown <laughs> and just giving a gentle wave to the well, crowd. Well, I did do a wave when I was um, forgetting where I was in the in the dance routine. But the funniest and best thing about it actually was the in the kind of like marshalling yard, like this huge fenced off area where everybody kind of congregates before the march gets going. And of course, like there's 190 floats or something. So it's quite slow. March started at seven, but we didn't get moving. So we were right at the end. Um, Till hours later but the greatest thing was all these people you know when they're all around their floats it all makes sense you're like oh okay so you're a boat float and you're a bunch of sailors <laughs> with the bum cut out of your pants like awesome okay all right so this is like the bondage float great totally explains your you know harness and um Anyway, but in the marshalling yard, when they're all just wandering around, <laughs> like getting hot chips and stuff, you're like, what? Where are you from? Where, where's the jellyfish float? You know, it was so good. And just people having the best time. It was That's really cool. good fun. And what did you wear? Um, well, so the ABC, so it was an ABC float, but um, sort of 
organised by staff. So it was all, you know, in, in answer to the inevitable and immediate squawked questions on social media. I hope taxpayers' money is not going towards this. No, no the taxpayers' didn't. money goes towards Lee Sales Co. Cabot. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a joke. That's I just want to make it clear that was a joke. That's the worst thing about the barely covers your nose the first thing candy. David Anderson's yeah. gone to cut. Yeah. <laughs> that was a joke. People who were listening with no sense of humour. That's right. Not um, that there'd be any of those. So no, no podcast. public money was spent, but um, we all bought a T-shirt that had the ABC Lissajou prints um, printed on it. Did everybody know that that no. that squiggly thing is called the Lissajou? No. L i s s a j o u. Is that a real word or a made-up word? Uh, it is a real word, I think. Um, but I haven't really taken any steps to find out its sort of antecedents. I'll um. I'll just Google it now. Okay. Um, so you had happens. to wear a shirt. Did, was it at least covered in the the Lissajou covered in sequins? It was a sparkly Lissajou. Oh, okay. The Lissajou curve is named after Jules Antoine Antoine Lissajou. Um, and it's uh, the graph of a system of parametric equations which describe complex harmonic motion. Your cue, Lee Sales. So, yes, it is named after a dude. Okay. Thank you, Monsieur Lissajou. <laughs> anyway, so I had a T-shirt with that on it, and it was so funny because at our dance rehearsal on the Friday night, the cries, the gay cries, were very loud when the T-shirts were handed out. There was a lot of, oh, what? And a lot of, someone next to me actually shrieked, where can I find a seamstress at this hour? <laughs> <laughs> everyone's grabbed these shirts and gone, how can I make this sexy? So I, um, Patricia Carvellis was particularly upset. Right. Um, because she wanted to look hot. Right. And these T-shirts were not just your blocky kind of, you know, printed T-shirt. Uh, I'm, I'm so, guessing perhaps no gay men on the organising committee? or <laughs> <laughs> No, well, there were. But anyway, everybody did their own little thing with the T-shirt. So yeah. um, most of them did turn up a bit doctored. Um, I cut the sleeves off and I cut it off a bit shorter and cut out the neck. So it was actually, I just ended up looking. I was uh, Cut out some holes for nipple tassels. and No, because you weren't allowed to cut the lissajou. Oh, so I no see. So there was okay. Look, to be honest, I wouldn't have gone there anyway. But, um, sure. Uh, yeah, so I was sort of aiming for kind of like hot ally in my look, but I kind of ended up in something more like sort of goal attack for pride. <laughs> Because I was wearing this sort of like short skirt that looked a bit like a nipple skirt. Anyway, never mind. It was a, a great time was had by all. Okay, so that was the first thing that was sort of pushing you out of your comfort zone. What yep. was the other? So then I bounced straight from that to yep. uh, getting on a plane on Sunday and flying to Adelaide to interview <sighs> Helen Garner in front of oh a live crowd. Oh, my God. How did you get both of those things into one weekend? Look, um, what came first? Um, oh, yeah, so uh, Mardi Gras came first and yep. then um, the artistic director of Adelaide Writers, Best Writers Week, Joe Dyer, messaged me and said, oh, could you, you know, would you be interested? And I'm like, oh! <laughs> um, and what were you talking to Ganarama about? About um, Yellow Notebook. Right. And it was, I was really nervous. I, did, I don't often now get nervous interviewing people, but um, I think because I'm so sort of crammed with admiration and wanted you know, it all to go so perfectly that I was actually freaking terrified. And what what's Garner's vibe in does she she must get nervous? Or does she not? Well at one point we talked about like um how constructive nerves can be and the you know, um and how useful it is to um throw up in a bucket before you do these things. <laughs> I'm like, I had a bit of a chuck out of the back <laughs> just before this actually, Helen. Um 
So um, actually, it was a really interesting discussion, and um, I was sort of so hyped up during it that I've been sort of thinking about it in retrospect. And I think it'll go up as, as a podcast, and um, I'll certainly um, alert all interested parties, i.e., every single carbon-based life form <laughs> that's listening to this podcast, uh, in due course. But um, I, when I reread um, Yellow Notebook, I was struck by how many times during it she the way that she refers to herself is always as a small figure, you know. And remember that great line where she described herself as a small, grim figure with a notebook and a cold? <laughs> yes. But what happens again and again, and keep in mind these notebooks are sort of 78 to 87, I think, is she's constantly anxious about the things that she writes, writes about are small things. They're not, you know, huge, um, uh, earth-shattering things. Yeah. And I think... So we're talking about that. And she said, look, I don't really feel that way anymore, but I did at the time because women, you know, when you, um, she said, I always you know, wanted to be a writer and um, read a lot and studied great writers. And when we were at university, the great writers were men, you know, and tackling these huge issues. And so she always felt like all I'm doing is just sort of scribbling down these sort of observations and, talking about domesticity and all of these things that don't really matter and the more it crops up in the book the more I sort of felt like I wanted to remonstrate with her like across the, the across the generations because I think she writes about huge things actually mm. um, huge things that are um, subterranean and influential and powerful in people's lives but they're really hard to grapple with I mean I think that the strength of what of her life's work is really um, trying to organise and make sense of these huge questions. And I think she does that in her non-fiction as well. I mean, she deliberately tackles the, the hardest things, the biggest things and the things that it's so easy to turn away from. Mm. You know, she seems drawn to these huge questions of um, guilt and morality. And I mean, I think the small things... Um are usually, I think, the micro things are the best way to look at the macro things often. Like, that's how you illuminate the big themes. Yeah. Unless you're writing, say, Sapiens, yeah. um, you know, or you're Jared Diamond, like some people can connect those really grand sort of things. But I think mostly the way to illustrate, because the small things of life are the universal things. Exactly, yeah. So. She, um, she also said something really interesting. Um, she said that she doesn't in the end, think that she's really a fiction writer. Ah. And because we're talking about her habit of writing um, diary entries that are then almost like the generator mm. for, for a long time, her fiction, mm. and the way that she harvested her diaries to um, illuminate yep. the fiction that she writes. And one of the interesting things about Yellow Notebook is just the account of her struggle with what eventually became the children's bark. Do, do you know that's the only Ghana book that I've never read? Oh, right. I've never, ever read it. <laughs> and, and you're doing this thing with her and she goes, we well, you know what these notebooks were made to, to call <laughs> the children's bark. Yeah, I no! I've told her that I haven't read it, but I haven't read it because I know it's a, it'll take me an hour and a half to read it. I think it's a short book. Yep. It's been described to me as, not by her, but as um, a genuinely perfect novel. Um, and I now feel like I know heaps about the children's bark. So in Bernadette Brennan's, I think, excellent literary biography, um, she um, 
she gives an account of the writing of the children's bark. Now I've read Yellow Notebook, which is Ghana's experience of writing the children's bark. So I feel like I'm poised to spring, but I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm actually saving it. I'm saving it for when I really need to treat myself. Yeah, and it'd be good to be uninterrupted as well. So yeah. you can just give it, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be reading it on a train, you know, yeah. in bits and pieces. I really want to be quiet so that I can, you know, yep. maybe put on a lovely silky nighty. No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> pleasure myself. No, 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 no. <laughs> Anyway, I've told her this, um, and she seems cool with it. Um, but I feel like, you know, you've got to save them up like lollies, I reckon. Oh, for sure. Um, I often will save certain books to read when I'm yeah. on holiday. Um, actually, I just started diving back into a book that I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, probably maybe two years ago, that I started and then I put aside. It's called Far From the Tree by oh, Andrew, Andrew Solomon. Solomon. Yeah. Have no, you I've, read that? Look, I've, I saw him speak at... Um, Sydney Writers Festival a few years yeah, ago when he visited. That's when um, I started it. Right, and then I bought it, and it's sort of sitting there squatly. It's a really big book. It's huge, it's about a thousand pages, and it's yeah. quite quite small writing. So yeah. I actually did pick it up um, not long ago, but it was before I got my new glasses. So <laughs> and I just looked at it, I just went, Pah! "Can't do it." Because <laughs> it was just that's not going to happen. It's it's also it is so dense with insight and revelation that it's quite a slow read as well yeah. as well as being long because you feel like you have to well I do you have to pause and digest it which yeah. I don't often do with books actually because I'm a pretty fast reader. Yeah. But um it's ba the premise of it is that far from the tree refers to the saying the apple doesn't fall far mm. from the tree but in some cases the child is very very different to their parents so yeah. far from the tree. In fact actually you know when you think of it I mean one of my sort of enduring impressions of parenthood so far is how how your children are their own individual people yeah. and that I feel like my influence is sort of a bit limited around the edges of who they actually are which I actually <clears throat> before I had children I assumed that a ton of it was nurture mm. so um the, it's split into so he's exploring families and conditions where the children differ drastically from the parents and how does that play out yeah. so it, it's split into chapters and each chapter is looking at a different group so the first one is about deaf children there's autism schizophrenia um uh prodigies um the disabled um i'm in the transgender chapter at the moment the previous chapter was about crime um children who are criminals there's one about um rape children who are born from rape um and how that plays out it's absolutely fascinating because all of these kinds of families have their own experiences but there are also some commonalities like for example when he explored prodigies he found that the family other family group that they had the most in common with was families with disabled profoundly disabled children and it was because the entire family ends up having to revolve around this person who's yeah, right. really different to which all a, of their cohort. Which is the same dynamic this difference. Exactly yeah. yeah um and also the prodigies one was really interesting partly because I'm trying to get my boys to learn piano at the moment and I'm finding it tricky because when I was a kid learning music I was one of those annoying children that just begged and begged and begged and begged to learn music and then mm -hmm. never had to be told to practice mm -hmm. um and was just left to my own devices on it. Um, Slipping into your Highland dance garb. <laughs> oh, mummy, mummy, do please let me stay up later so that I may practice my So that I may watch the Edinburgh military tattoo. Oh, please, mummy. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> um, whereas my kids, of course, just are normal and they don't want to do their practice. And so I'm trying to work out. In fact, I've just started, like, bribing them. I say, if you do 10 minutes of practice, I'll give you a coin. And so I let them put a coin wow. in their money box. Yeah, just Wow, so them. they're rebelling against your spreadsheet. 
So um, he, oh no, I've lost. Oh yeah, he was prodigies. talking in this book about prodigies, saying. Um, Look, how prodigies all... just tip you into talking about you. <laughs> well, are on the topic of uncontrollable brilliance. <laughs> so he says the. You know, obviously as a parent, you're making decisions all the time thinking, oh, is this the right thing to do? Is this not the right thing to do? And he said often with these kids who turned out to be brilliant, in some cases they resented their parents that their parents, because often the parents were very driven and, you know, forcing them to practice for hours a day and so forth, which is actually, um, I'm trying to do the opposite because I feel like I, at the end of the day, I'll, all I really want is for the kids to love music. I don't really care if they do exams yeah. or if they practice or whatever. I just want them to come out the other end still loving music. Um, so I'm keeping a really hands-off thing. So if they don't want their 20 cents for, <clears throat> for practicing, then... 20 um, cents? Wow. <laughs> that's for, that's hey, they're six and eight. <laughs> that's for 10 minutes. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. if, <laughs> so I'm just like, whatever, do it, do it or don't do it. Um, but then he made the point that often also children resent their parents when they're grown-ups and they can't play a musical instrument because if only mum or dad made you? me practice. Yeah, I know. I think, yeah. So it's a bit of a um, bit of a no win, but anyway, it's the chapter about rape and the children of rape was unbelievably. It's all really, really affecting, and and it all has amazing insight. The chapter that I just finished about um, crime, he goes and interviews the parents of Dylan Klebold, who was one of the Columbine High School massacre, and they they yeah. he stays with them and they give him a lot of access. And, oh, man, it was so sad because often in the cases of children who are criminals, um, they come from troubled backgrounds and so mm. forth, but there are also plenty of cases of people, kids who turn out to be criminals or do terrible things and their parents are completely nice and normal and it's sort of inexplicable. He explores a little bit about the environment cause driving somebody towards crime and the you know treatment by their parents or family or whatever or circumstances and also genetic predisposition towards crime and whether some people are actually born yeah. and drawn to crime. But the Klebolds, they talk about, they were sort of blindsided when their son did this, as you yeah. would be. They thought, you know, maybe that he had a few problems, but they had no idea of the extent of it. And the mum made the point that very quickly, 15 people were killed and very quickly only 13 deaths were ever acknowledged because the two yeah. kids killed themselves who were the perpetrators. And she said, um, you know, I understand that, and she'd written to all of the victims and stuff, and, um, you know, I understand my son did a terrible thing, but I still lost my son, yeah. and, and I had to come to terms with that he wasn't who I thought he was. Like, there was a whole yeah, lot of like grief. Yeah, double and, death, basically. Oh, terrible. Of the person that you thought they were. Yeah. And then... And they were sort of, the Klebolds were, you know, almost driven out of town, basically. Like, they were just mm. such targets for hate and so forth. And, yeah, you just felt really sorry for them. And just the sort of daily struggle for them to try to keep living a life. Oh, man, it was really, really full on. And just coming to terms with when your child does something really, really awful. Yeah. How do you manage it? So I, I think it's an absolutely remarkable book. Like, I find myself thinking about it all the time. But I do sort of... I think the reason I started it and then put it down was because it is so intense. So mm. intense. It's a really intense piece of work, but absolutely amazing. Really, really I liked it. it. I listened to a good podcast. Um, Richard Feidler's got a good conversation with him, which Fantastic. is a good, um, yep. really good intro. The thing that makes me uncomfortable about that book, though, and like, is it's just like, I don't know. I don't know how you would possibly do this without it being kind of, you know jarring but it's just it's it's like 
collecting all of these sorts of people into a book and saying, well, you know, don't, do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of, I would be, I don't know if I was the um, parent of a hearing impaired child, I'd be like, oh, okay, so my kid's in this book with the uh, with the serial killer. Yeah, like, <laughs> I see what you're like, saying. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of like, it's an old fashioned way of organizing groups of people yeah. right but yeah. anyway look i you know it's it sounds like i mean i'm massively I, I just feel like separately they're all really fascinating chapters they are. the collection into a books is seems a bit like all of them you could have written your own uh, a whole yeah. book about but i think the power of it actually is that it's all in the one book because it's just that sense that you know people can be different in so many different ways and yet there are some sort of commonalities to the human experience. I think it also highlights to me how unless you have direct personal experience that you know someone in your family has schizophrenia, mm. you have a child with autism, it's it's really invisible to you all of those worlds completely yeah. invisible to you. So yeah. for example, in the deaf chapter he talks about there's sort of two schools of thought around it. There is actually an autism as well, which is you try to give the child basically the tools to pass as, you know, mainstream. So you, yeah. you, you encourage them to play down their deafness. Yeah. So lip reading, for example, is part yeah. of that. Or if you have a child with autism, you try to um, find ways to get them to not flap their arms around or spin around in circles or whatever. Um, but then there's a totally different school of thought, which is, no, why, why force them to hide their essential yeah, self? Yeah. yeah. And so um, that school of thought more embraces, say, signing um, and deaf pride and in autism allowing you to not repress yep. your sort of ways of being. And then those two groups often, you know, clash with each other and parents themselves often are torn, like, what should I, you know, go for here? What's sure. going to be best for my child? Because and there is actually nothing that grabs you more deeply and emotionally than what sort of experience is my child having? I mean, that, that really explains mm. the yeah. high feeling, you know, amongst. But then the Prodigies chapter, I mean, it's fascinating too because in many of the cases, um, the family, say there's numerous ones who are in China where the parents have had really hard lives and they sacrifice massively to get the kid to yeah. be getting great music lessons and the pressure on the child to practice and to be amazing is really, really intense. And, and you know, like often physical punishment and stuff. Um, and then the child becomes successful. And so I guess mission accomplished because then, you know, the child's not having to replicate the parents' lives. Yeah. But then the, the adult children are sometimes dysfunctional. They don't really like music. They feel like they have damaged relationships with their parents because yeah. of what's gone on. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's very fraught, but anyway, it's a brilliant book. Right, well, now that I've got my new glasses, maybe I need to have another crack at that. It's funny, actually, that... See, I had no idea you were reading that, and... Um, yeah, I just picked it up out of the blue. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's weird because, like, the book that I've read since I last saw you is about unusual children, actually. It's, oh. um, it's a book um, by um, a, an American writer called Kevin Wilson, which just makes me laugh because I just think, if he comes to Australia... <laughs> People are just going to go <laughs> when they meet him. With any might not. They're know just going to go why. Santa Claus. You yeah. where's me bike? <laughs> I can recite a fair bit of Kevin. I bloody Wilson. I bet you can. Growing up in Queensland. Oh my god. <laughs> so Kevin Bloody Wilson, without the bloody, has written this book, and I just can't just even thinking about it makes me laugh. It's so preposterous, right? Um, it's called Nothing to See Here. Yep. 
And the story is, and I should say that our friend Taffy Bradessa Ackner has blurbed it as like just a perfect, like, mate, it's funny, beautifully structured. It's an absolutely cracking novel. As a quick aside, she's following me on Twitter now. Is she? She's watching me. She is monitoring what I am up to. Yeah, but do you know what? She's disorganised. She'll forget to look. (laughs) I know her kind. I am her kind. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Kevin Wilson. So, Kevin Bloody Wilson. Uh, So, there's... Here's the the thesis of the book, right? The narrator grew up in a really um, poor household, single mother, um, won a scholarship to a local super exclusive girls boarding school, meets this rich, beautiful girl and is her roommate. Um, something happens at the school that... Um, uh, means that our hero gets expelled basically takes the rap for the rich girl and then um years and years and years and years later that means they sort of keep in touch and the rich girl has married a senator who's running for president and she asks the narrator to come and move in with them to look after the senator's two children from an earlier marriage she really needs somebody she can trust to look after these children while he's thinking about running for president because these children have this very unusual attribute, which is that when they become distressed, they burst into flames. <laughs> when they become distressed, they, burst they into start flames. singing filthy Kevin Bloody Wilson songs. <laughs> anyway. So do you have to stop them from bursting into flames? Well, there's no solution offered. It's just like, oh. this is what they do. Can you parent them, look after them, and and kind of keep this under control so that they don't like burn down the White House or whatever? Like, but, she's given but no so they just that. burn like the eternal flame. They don't actually burn themselves. They just are no. They burst into flame that, and they and their whole body is covered with flame. Right. But they do not burn to a crisp themselves. Do you get a fire hose onto them? <laughs> you could. Yes. I mean, this is that is all the information that she is given, and she's like. <laughs> Ah, she's okay, like, I'll do yeah, it. it sounds like a good job. It sounds like a great gig. But the narrator is this... <laughs> is it like, a comedy or is it... It's hilarious. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's... I can't even describe it. It's it's <laughs> such a good book. Like, I, And if you... I mean, the, the premise sounds so stupid that you just think, well, that's not... What, that's not I'm laughing what? my ass yeah, off just know, at the right? premise. It's just, and the, char- the lead character is just... I love her. Oh, okay. She's, this sounds she's great. kind of... She's kind of brilliant but nihilistic she doesn't really like kids she's like oh well it couldn't be any worse than my current job <laughs> and the story of her and these two children anyway it's i couldn't recommend it more highly oh, okay that great sounds great book. and it's a fast read okay. and you'll just smile you know it's great and it's, it's the great kids book. catching fire actually and spreading <laughs> their fire it, it really is just a metaphor for what your kids are actually like sure, really isn't right, it yeah, yeah they, and really the fire kind of ends up you know obviously it, it lends a, a certain structure to the narrative <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's a great it just makes me just laugh about being human like that someone can have that idea and actually make it work it's terrific speaking of um 
the supernatural. I've watched a couple more episodes of that thing I talked about last time, the movies that made us. I think I'd watched. Um, God, I thought you'd bored me to death on every single I, episode of that. No, what, you oh, no Die Hard. That's right about yeah, Die Hard. Hard. That, that um, took a while. No, there's only three others. There's Home Alone, Dirty yeah. Dancing, and Ghostbusters. Look, I really, it's just, it's like just eating burger rings. That show, it's just like fluffy. But there's some great stuff in it. Um, Home Alone, which I only actually rewatched recently with my kids who loved it. I mean, I must say, it, it very narrowly didn't, nearly didn't get made. Um, right. it, same with Dirty Dancing. It was just like, you know, money comes through and then it yeah. falls over and yeah. it's, you know, you can't get the people and you want. And they weren't expensive films, were they, to make? No, they weren't, but their return on investment yeah. is insane. Um, but Home Alone, oh, my God, I'd forgotten... Macaulay Culkin is truly the cutest child I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah. And he was so fantastic in yeah. that film. It was just a pleasure watching is it with Karen the kids. Is Karen Culkin in it as well? No. But no. he's been in another he was he's in another in succession. film. Yeah, yeah but yeah. he was a he was a child actor as well, wasn't yeah, he? Wasn't he, he in was another in, Macaulay? Um, have you seen Home Alone too? Is that possible? I don't know, but he, Kieran Culkin, Wait, I, I think, was lauded for, there was another film that he was in that was really highly lauded when he was younger, I don't know if he was a child, but the um, the Ghostbusters one is also hilarious, where <laughs> they think they've signed up Bill Murray to be the third Ghostbuster, and Dan Aykroyd assures everyone that, yeah, Bill said he'd do it, and then they just never hear from Bill Murray again. <laughs> I love Bill Murray, and nothing he does <laughs> will make me greatest. dislike him. And they show oh, up. Tell, turns out to be a sex monster or something, I wouldn't like that. They show up um, on the first day of filming thinking, and everyone's just like, what the hell? Bill never signed a contract. Like, no one's <laughs> ever heard from him again. Dan Aykroyd hadn't heard from him after the original conversation. 8 a.m. first day filming, filming, Bill Murray shows up. Um, and there's another great story. The, the, so the Ghostbusters are Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and a guy called Harold Ramis, who yeah. um, wrote and directed Groundhog Day. Harold Ramis is a genius. He is. People adore Harold Ramis, who are fans of him. And he and Bill Murray... Uh, they were really, really great friends and really tight and then they did Groundhog Day together and Harold Ramis' daughter's interviewed and she says, I don't really know what happened but they had some sort of falling out and they just never spoke again. Wow. And Dad reached out to Bill a few times but it didn't really go anywhere. Anyway, Harold Ramis was then dying and um, Bill Murray's shown up in town because they've lost touch. He doesn't know where Harold Ramis is. So Bill Murray goes to the local police station and just walks in and goes, take me to Harold Ramis. <laughs> So they take Bill Murray. And of course they do. Yeah. They're like, yep, this checks out. And so they took him around and she said they had a few hours together and had a talk and, and whatnot. So it was great. But the Dirty Dancing one is also, um, oh, it's just it's just good fun. And the, the, you know, it's all the great little anecdotes about, you know, the song I've had the time of my life. Yeah. Such a great song and such an important part of that film. They're trying to find the song for the final dance and they're recording bits to a click track because they just cannot no, find, yeah, really? they can't find a song. <gasps> and um, they finally, the last cassette they put on is I've Had the Time of My Life. And they go, and, and the guy who's looking for it, you know, looking for the music says well, to because his... it's just from his car or something? He's no, like, they've oh, got submissions oh, right, and yeah. stuff. He says to his, per, his, his colleague... Okay, you need to listen to this because I think that because it's the last tape that I'm just, I'm in such a state of desperation. I'm going, yeah, this is it. But they, they both listen and go, this is it. And it was the very last thing oh. that they listened to. <laughs> I know. Could you imagine? And then Ghostbusters, another absolutely wow. iconic song that completely makes that film. Um, they hire Ray Parker Jr. to do it. And he just can't make the can't make it work and they, the one the only brief they've given to Ray Parker Jr. is the song must include the word Ghostbusters. <laughs> 
And he says, pretty low bar. He's right? got he's got a sort of tune worked out, but he just cannot figure out what to do. And then he's watching late night TV one night, and they're selling you know vacuum cleaners and all the crap you see getting sold on late night TV, and they're doing like call right now. And then he's just like, oh, who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters. And then he just got it. Wow. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. That's so random. Yeah, they're all full of like little just little gems like that that just make you laugh and um yeah, just really, really great. So I just it's just total fluff. Exact opposite to far from the tree, total fluff. So highly recommend it. You love a bit of fluff. I love You're a bit a of fluff. fluff fancier. Um hey, I watched The Stranger. Oh good, okay. I've been seeing that sitting there and wanting to know should I watch it? Right. See, in my brain, I thought you'd told me to watch it. No. Somebody else did, obviously. No, it oh must have been somebody what's else. What's going on with my brain? I do not know. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, then. <laughs> Should Rolling I watch up it? Sleeves. Well, I was just going to, um, you know, mention that sometimes I do what you, sh- you say because I watched The Stranger, no, but obviously it was because not me. I've obeyed the other person. I can't remember who. Uh, so please get in touch. Uh, I, have, <laughs> I have obeyed someone. I just don't know who. So um, it is... Fantastic. It is so gripping that I watched, I think there's eight episodes, and I was like, I downloaded them onto my phone (gasps) so that I could watch them. And I watched, I got delayed in Adelaide yesterday for four hours. So I did a whole heap of work, and then I rewarded myself by watching the finished, like the last two and a half episodes. Oh, so you've watched the whole thing? I've watched the whole thing, baby. Oh, my God. I've watched it in Inside a Week. I was going to say. um, And now I've had a crazy week, so that shows you just how scratchy I was about. Oh, okay. I might save that for over Easter. Yeah. So um, it's Netflix. Um, I can't remember the names of anyone who's in it except for Jennifer Saunders who's in it. Okay. It's um, Jennifer Saunders. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So... The, it's it's from a novel by a guy called Harlan Coben, which oh, yeah. I read. Um, but it's about these two young women who show up in people's lives and tell them a secret that they didn't know about their somebody that they love or themselves, or you know, they basically are in the business of exposing secrets. Right. And so the principal character, who's a dad. Um, is visited at his son's footy ga- footy club um, by this pair of young women, and they say, um, "You know that your wife faked the pregnancy that she miscarried a couple of years ago. You know that, don't you? Like, and you you didn't have to stay with her because that was a fake." And he's just like, "What? You know, this is what? Who are you? Are you crazy?" And so he is immediately thrown into this complete tumult, you know. And he confronts his wife and it's obviously true but a bit more complicated and then she disappears oh so the rest of the series is him trying to work out a where his wife's gone finding out things about his family and there are about two or three other um, simultaneously told stories that of other people that these mysterious two young women have visited and dropped truth bombs on and look I um, it's it is deeply gripping and um, I felt anxious while I was watching it (laughs) you know how I get a bit like spooked out by you know super thrillers but yeah it it was really good oh my god that sounds great yeah I watched on the weekend, I think it got the best documentary Oscar either this year or last year, might have been last year. Um, it's called American Factory. Oh, right. Yeah. It's about um, 
a General Motors factory in, I think it's in Ohio. Is it in Ohio? Ohio. I actually um, uh, have heard of this film. Yeah. And I've looked it up before and I've been meaning to watch it. So, so General Motors shut down a factory. 10,000 people in the town lost their jobs. And then a Chinese company called Fu Yao that makes car windscreens and glass takes over the abandoned site mm. and they want to have a half American, half Chinese oh, workforce. Wow. And they want to try to have a sort of joint, you know, it's, so it's a, it's a really big deal for the town because this huge, this Chinese billionaire puts this huge influx of cash, people get re-employed into jobs and they, you know, everyone sort of wants to make it work. But of course, the inevitable culture clash begins mm. with the way that the Chinese workforce works and right, have yeah. been trained to work in China yeah. and the way the heavily formally heavily unionized american workforce works and it just they've been given the doco makers had amazing access it it, it's a good doco it did for me there were a few questions i had that were not, not answered which one of them was um why why did the chinese billionaire want to do this what like what was the i presume he was given heavy subsidies or something but why the appeal is it just because there wasn't space in china you couldn't get a factory as big or what was the appeal of it um and also why did the doco makers have such amazing access they're inside all these key meetings they're recording quite sensitive conversations i assume maybe the people assumed at the start that this was going to be a great success in it and it's obviously like a precedent setting groundbreaking project mm. maybe that's why the access was given and the company has now um it, the doco ends with from 2018 fuya has started turning a profit but it was yeah. losing money quite significantly there's a key bit where some of the people in the the Americans in the workplace want to unionize mm. and others in the workforce and in fact I won't say whether a majority or not but others in the workforce don't want to because they are grateful to have a job and they want to be back there and they don't want to you know upset the apple cart basically the Chinese workforce are infuriated by what they see as the fairly lazy unproductive work ethic of the americans who yeah, are right. in the factory so um and then the the americans sort of like at the one submarines point, with the french and the australian workers. yeah so that's right, right here exactly the, at one point the american workers get taken some of them to the fuya headquarters in china to have a look at how that factory works right Man, it's like the, the speed and whatnot at which those people work is like a ballet watching it, but obviously injury rate and stuff like that yeah, right. very high. So it's, yeah, anyway, it's, it's interesting. It's worth a look. Um, that's funny um, because that, that was an Oscar short film, wasn't it? Or an Oscar it's doco? A it's, it was one, I yeah, think. Yeah, right, okay. I was just, um, I had a bit of a clang moment the other night where I um, met Q um, Ming Lu. The, um, she's written a lot of stuff for the ABC, including that great um, um, series, The Heights. Oh, yeah. I got massively addicted to. Oh, yeah. And I'm very, very excited that there is a series two oh. coming really soon. Um, but anyway, I was talking to her and I was saying, I was talking about um, this short film that I'd seen, but I couldn't remember anything about it except <laughs> what it was about. And it was really embarrassing when you're trying to say, oh, this great film, <laughs> who was in it? I can't remember. All I could remember was the premise of it, which was... Um, that um, it's about a psychiatrist who's got an 11 o'clock appointment with a patient who thinks he's a psychiatrist and that's the thing. And so he arrives and there's um, like a, a new receptionist on. And so like halfway through the thing, you're like, oh my God, 
which of these dudes is actually the psychiatrist. Oh, that's fantastic. It's, um, yeah. What and, a great idea. Uh, and so I was enthusiastic telling, enthusiastically telling Q about this, being super pleased about meeting her because I think she's a genius, um, and then just being a bit embarrassed because I couldn't remember any details. But then I remembered, and I also remembered, I don't think I've talked about that film on this podcast before, but it's really good. It's called The Eleven O'Clock. And it won the Oscar for short film in 2016. Oh, okay. And it's got Damon Herriman. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. How so can I see that? I think it's just on, I think it's around. I think YouTube just search for it or something. Okay, and it'll It's come not up. very long. Um, and I watched it at home, so um, like a year or two ago, I think. Um, so Jeremy must have magicked it up out of one of the platforms that we copiously subscribed to. All right. Um, but well, it's so good and a bit mind-bendy. And so, um, well, yeah. I am going to disappear right now and go and find it. Yep. Do it. Are you enjoying Chat Tan Looks 3? If you do enjoy our company, uh, you can interact on a just a dizzying array of online platforms. You can go to our website, www.chat10looks3.com, where you'll have the, all the show notes from every show we've ever done. Thanks, Brenda. Uh, there's also um, a little link through to uh, a bookshop called Bedside Table, where you can purchase, if you'd like, any of the books that we've talked about in the podcast. You can also find merch if Gwen has been up to her terrible tricks and um, putting together diabolically hilarious merchandise. Can you make this a bit snappier? It's going to take us over the 30 minutes. Oh, my God. Are you for real? <laughs> anyway, uh, you can catch us on Instagram, on Twitter, or join the Facebook group, which is, well, that's just uh, something um, completely else indeed. 